0: Alright, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I want to look at a couple of verses here from the story of Jesus when He healed the demoniac. The demoniac was possessed of a legion of devils. He was in the land of the Gadarenes on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, running around, living in the tombs. You know, a a demon-possessed individual that came upon Jesus and His disciples. And the demons inside of this man knew who Jesus was. There was no debate. They knew He was the Son of God, and they knew He had power over them. And as we talk about Satan and the forces of evil and their role in the last days, we need to remember who Jesus is and that He has power over over these beings, okay? And I just was reading this the other day and saw something that I've never seen before. And it was a a lesson that the Bible is a wellspring of wisdom and there's always something there to teach us. Always. And I was just encouraged by it. I wanted to share it with you as a means of introduction. Um, Jesus obviously cast out these devils, cast them into the pigs. I've been to the spot in Israel near the cliffs on the east side of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee and seen where this probably took place. It's an interesting area. And the word spread that this man who many people feared had been healed. In verse 37, um, that... Uh, the people came out and they were afraid. They saw this man who was whacked out of his mind sitting clothed at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. Something they'd never seen before. And it scared the people so bad that they told Jesus and the disciples, please leave, don't come back. And they did. But look in verses 38 and 39. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him, or Jesus, that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way, and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done for him. Oftentimes, when I try to talk to Muslims about Christ, they will say, that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus claim to be God. Okay? Jesus isn't like the devil. He doesn't have to go around boasting about who he is and what he's able to do. With Jesus, it's obvious. And he leaves it to you to decide or not. That's just the way he does things. But he does claim to be God. And he claims to, do, to be it right here in this verse. You see, Jesus is the one that cast out the devils. And when this man wanted to go with him, Jesus didn't say, go and tell people what great things I have done. He said, go and tell them what God has done for you. So Jesus is claiming to be God. And I find it interesting in verse 39 that the Gospel author Luke makes a point to say that this man went and told what Jesus had done for him. So right here, I've never paused to consider that Jesus does claim to be God. And right here, the Gospel author emphasizes that this man was obedient. Jesus didn't say, go tell them what God has done, and then he was disobedient and went and said what Jesus had done. No, the man was obedient. He went and told everyone what Jesus had done because Jesus was God. And when we talk about God and we talk about the devil and the great red dragon, we're not talking about cosmic dualism. Good versus evil, where there's an equal amount of strength on both sides, where one feeds off the other. We're not talking about an end or consummation of all things that's in doubt. We're talking about the God of heaven and earth who created all things. And then we're talking about The evil one who is a created being. So, as we speak about these things, and even children, as you think about these things, sometimes these passages scared me when I was a child in Revelation 12 and 13. We need to remember who Jesus is. And he has power over the devils, he can put them in. They had to beg him to please put them in the pigs and not put us into the deep. And when people have an encounter with God through Christ, they're changed. Just like that demoniac. But the greater lesson is right there in the scriptures was a profound truth that I've never seen before. Never. And I was looking at it the other morning and it hit me. Yes, Jesus is claiming to be God here. So search the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Seek wisdom from God in the scriptures as you try to make decisions. God will speak specifically to you. If you haven't sought Him in the Scriptures and you're seeking through other avenues, you're robbing yourself. Okay, other avenues can deceive you, but the Scriptures won't. Other avenues will confirm what the Scriptures are telling you to do. So just let that be an encouragement. And by way of introduction, turn to Revelation 12. We're talking about a great red dragon, but He's not God. It's a created being. God governs even Him and only allows him to do so much. Last time we, we were talking about these two wonders. They kind of are the overriding theme in this parenthesis. Israel and Satan, and the hatred Satan has for the children of Israel, the physical seed of Abraham. And we talked about the great red dragon last time. We introduced him, and I want to present this picture to you mckenna took it upon herself i asked her if she would try to draw what we talked about last time and considering how difficult that is i think she did a pretty good job and she wrote the scripture down so if you want a visual i'll pass this around and let you look at it this morning she's even got the stars over here on the tail so thank you i don't even see her oh thank you mckenna for doing that so you guys can get a visual don't let it scare you kids it's just a picture okay pretty scary though. Um, But uh, I want to talk this morning, verse 3, we introduced the two wonders last time we talked about Satan the adversary as he's revealed here a great red dragon as he's revealed in Job 41 the Leviathan. But I want to zero in today on his description at the end of verse 3. It says, and there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon, comma. And that's where we stopped last time. I want to finish verse 3 today. What does it say about this great red dragon? Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. I want to talk a little bit today about seven heads and ten horns. These things are there for a reason. This description is given for a reason and I want to look at it. So we're going to look up a few verses today. I'm going to need your help, men. And uh, I want to show the connection here. So we see seven heads, ten horns. This isn't the only time we're going to see this in the book of Revelation. So let's see where else we can find it. Because obviously if we find it elsewhere, there's a connection. So Matthew, if you look up Revelation 13, 1. Eric chapter 17, verse 3. Okay? Jason, I'll have you look up Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And Jim, I'll have you look up Daniel chapter 2, 41 through 42. Okay? So here in chapter 12, we're talking about a great red dragon who is Satan. Seven heads, ten horns. Let's look at 13 verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten sons, and upon his heads. So here we have a beast that comes out of the sea. Who is the beast in chapter 13? Anybody know? Mm-mm. That's... It's the Antichrist. Okay, guys? The Antichrist, we'll talk about that later, has seven heads and ten horns, just like the dragon. Okay? Revelation 17, verse 3. So he me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names and of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten seven Revelation 17 John sees a vision that's called Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots and whores and abominations of the earth. And he sees this great whore drunk with the blood of the saints sitting upon a scarlet colored beast in the wilderness. And this scarlet colored beast has seven heads and ten horns, okay? We're going to look into that. I actually wrote a commentary on chapter 17 for a school project one time years ago. Um, it's a bunch of uh, scholarly language that you probably wouldn't understand, so it's no point for me to read from it. It was a, a school assignment in seminary. Um, so we have this scarlet-colored beast with the same description. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. This I saw in the night vision, and beheld a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong, exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, to devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. So we have Daniel's fourth beast. Those four beasts, as we've studied before, represented four Gentile kingdoms that would arise from his day forward and be an instrument of persecution against Israel. And this last beast, a revised, not a revived Roman Empire, would be terrible. And this beast would have ten horns. And, of course, we learn that out of these ten horns comes a little horn, which is Antichrist. So Daniel's fourth beast has ten horns. Okay, And then chapter 2, 41-42... Whereas they saw us the feet and toes part of the potter's clay and part of iron the kingdom shall be divided. There shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as they saw us the iron mixed with married clay, and as he towed that the feet were part of iron, part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. This is Daniel's vision of that great image that he saw and interpreted from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The four beasts or four Gentile world kingdoms as God sees them. Hideous beasts. The image represented these same four kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms, as man sees them. Precious metals, but they deteriorated in their uh, density and their value. And it was a top-heavy image. And the head of gold eventually deteriorated and became... Feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. The legs and the, the, the iron legs and the, and the waist going down to the feet and toes was the fourth kingdom. And this, obviously this image had toes, so how many toes was it? Ten toes. So Daniel's vision has ten toes in chapter 2, or Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Daniel's in chapter 7 has ten horns, okay, the great red dragon has seven heads and ten horns. The beast out of the sea, Antichrist, seven heads, ten horns. And then the scarlet, scarlet colored beast that gives the rod to the whore, the woman, and then devours her, has seven heads and ten horns. So there's a connection here. It's all controlled by Satan. It's a connection. It's all having to do with Satan and Antichrist and an enemy of both Israel and the church. But what are these seven heads? Okay? Ten horns are the form of the last kingdom. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what are the seven heads? What do they possibly represent? For the answer, since there's obviously a connection between the scarlet-colored beast in chapter 17 and the dragon, and the antichrist, and these verses from Daniel, we can go there for the answer. Look at chapter 17. We're going to study this chapter later. I don't want to get too in detail here. But it helps us with this present issue. Chapter 17, verse 9. John is given an interpretation of what this vision is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads... These are the seven heads he saw on the scarlet colored beast, are seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. And there are, verse 10, and there are seven kings, five fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. So here we're told that these seven uh, heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. And that these seven mountains in verse 9 are seven kings or seven kingdoms. So that's a pretty clear answer. What does it mean? Um, We're told later in that chapter in verse 18 who the woman is or who the, the prostitute or the whore is. And the woman which thou saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So you have this beast undergirding a woman who represents the false religious system that deceives the whole world. Okay? And at some, at some point, this beast that empowers her betrays her as well and devours her. And she's just used as an instrument to deceive people so they'll be ready to welcome or worship Antichrist. The seven ma- uh, heads or seven mountains or seven hills. What is traditionally or historically known as the city of seven hills, that sitteth on seven hills? Anybody know if you studied any world history, you would know this. What's the city that sits on seven hills? Rome. Rome is the city of seven hills. Okay? It was first built independent settlements on seven different hills in a marshy area began to uh, uh, come together and eventually a wall was built around that to protect them from the outside. And these seven hills were the foundation of the city of Rome. And from those settlements on seven hills, that city was born. You can go to the seven different hills in Rome today and see monuments on them. There was Aventine, and uh, Salian, and Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Quirinal, and Viminal. The seven hills, okay? So if the woman is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth, and the seven heads or seven mountains, then it makes sense to me that this is somehow a reference to Rome. And more than anything else, what is the center today, in this period of time, of all that is false or counterfeit in terms of Christian religion? It's the Roman Catholic Church. Now some would say that this is a reference to Rome specifically, and that the whore is apostate religion, mystery Babylon, as personified today in the Roman Catholic Church. That's a typical interpretation. okay Now there's truth in this, and we'll discuss it more when we get to Revelation 17, but I believe the picture is far bigger. I believe the Roman Catholic Church is a manifestation of a bigger Spirit of apostasy that exists going all the way back to the days of Nimrod. So the picture's bigger than that. I do believe this is a reference to Rome. I do believe that the Roman Catholic Church will have a part in the rise of Antichrist and the deception. Rome doesn't seem to have the power it used to have. I believe that that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of money and influence in Rome even today. I believe she controls a lot of what's happening even in the Muslim world. Okay? We just don't see it. She's very clever. Okay? And I think she will be at the center of the rise of Antichrist. Now, she'll be devoured when Antichrist puts himself in the place of God. But she'll be an instrument he uses... For his benefit and then betrays her. See, that's what Satan does. Satan uses people and promises them things, and they sell their soul to him, but then he turns on them and betrays them when he's, his usage is done. What he does, he does for his own benefit. So be careful. Be careful the spirit you follow. Okay? It will use you for its own benefit, and when it's done with you, it'll turn on you. But that's a that's a lesson for another time. Um, we are told that these are seven hills. Rome is the city of the seven hills. We'll investigate that some later. But we're also told in verse 9 or 10 of chapter 17 that the seven hills are seven kings. So while there may be an ultimate reference to Rome here, there's a greater spiritual reference, I believe, that points to all of history. Remember the nature of Old Testament prophecy, a shadow fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment. We're told that Five of these kings, now this is from John's perspective, John's writing in the end of the first century, that five of these kings are fallen. They're gone. The sixth is, or is in existence at the time John is writing. The seventh has not yet come. And when he does, he will only continue for a short time. And then it tells us in verse 11 that there's an eighth king. Okay? The beast itself is the 8th king. He's just like the 7 before him and he will go into perdition. So this is from John's perspective. So what is he talking about? This has direct bearing on what we're talking about in chapter 12 because Satan has 7 heads. Okay? Satan's 7 heads don't refer to Rome. He's bigger than that. He's been around since the dawn of time. He's wanted to destroy the seed of the woman since the Garden of Eden. Since even before that we'll talk about that in a minute, but John's perspective, from his perspective, there are seven kings or kingdoms, five are gone, one is at this time, another's coming. What about Daniel's perspective? The Bible doesn't contradict itself. We know, and we've already mentioned, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and we're told that that dream or that image represents, in the interpretation Daniel gives, four Gentile kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar forward until Messiah in his kingdom. Messiah would be the stone cut without hands that becomes a mighty mountain and fills the earth. And that's the millennial kingdom. So Daniel's told from his day until the millennium, there's only four Gentile world kingdoms. Okay? We know Babylon uh, arose in 605 BC. That was the kingdom uh, that Daniel lived in at the time. 539 B.C., the Medo-Persia would supplant Babylon as the Gentile world kingdom. 331 B.C., Greece would arise and overthrow the Persians. And then in 146 B.C., Rome would arise and defeat the Greeks. Or assimilate the Greeks and become one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Rome was represented by the, the, uh, the thighs and legs of iron. You know, the Eastern and the Western Kingdom would divide, and this eventually becomes ten toes, iron mixed with clay. Okay? A revised Roman Empire of sorts. In a sense, Rome, the Roman Empire's never ended. The the major nation states in Europe today were Roman territories. Okay? And the nation states we have today in, in, in Europe are just the old. Roman provinces. They've never become anything else. In a sense, the United States has transplanted Roman Empire, a revised form of government, much like what existed in the Republic of Rome. More so, the Roman Empire. Today, we've got a president that thinks he's a king. So Daniel uh, tells Nebuchadnezzar there'd be only four kingdoms from his day forward. They're represented as precious metals with diminishing value and specific gravity. There's a deteriorating governing power. Absolute monarch in Nebuchadnezzar trickles down to become the mess that democracy is today and ends with a ten-nation federation. It's as man sees the works of man, precious metals. We go to Daniel's vision in chapter 7 that was read about. He's told these are four beasts that are four kings which shall arise out of the earth from the day of Daniel till the coming of Messiah. So again, there's only four kingdoms according to Daniel. Uh, they're seen as ferocious beasts, the fourth being Rome, and in its revised state, a terrible beast out of which Antichrist arise. These are, as God sees the work of man, the spiritual side of human government. So I don't care how great you think this government is in our country today. It has a spiritual side. And in man's eyes, it may be glorious, but in God's eyes, it's grotesque. It's grotesque, whether it's Republican or Democrat, mm-hmm. whether it's liberal or conservative. I'm just sick of all the labels, to be honest with you. Republican, Democrat, is she a conservative? Is he a true conservative? Is he a liberal? I'm not a liberal. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Ronald Reagan's dead. Okay, he's dead. The great conservatives we talk about, they're gone. This is a different world we live in, folks. Quit worrying about those labels. They don't mean anything. And the most conservative man on that Republican stage is not clean as the driven snow. I can promise you that. Mm -hmm. There were some mailers that were sent out in Iowa the other day by the Ted Cruz campaign that were absolutely disgusting. A violation of privacy. Messed up. So don't put your hopes in Republicans and conservatives. Don't do it. The spiritual side of human government. Don't put them in liberals and communist Democrats either. Put them in the Lord. Think less about going to the ballot box and more about getting on your knees in prayer and asking God to have mercy on our nation. But even the most conservative side of American government has a spiritual side that's grotesque in the eyes of God. That's the lesson there from Daniel 7. In both cases, in Daniel, we're told there are four Gentile kingdoms that would arise from the time of Daniel until the end. And these would be four kingdoms that specifically would persecute national Israel. There are kingdoms that would specifically persecute her while she was in the land. All of that was revealed in terms of God's prophetic clock with Israel. These are kingdoms that would arise that would be used to persecute, or that would persecute Israel while she was a nation. Okay? Four kingdoms. Babylon, it's mentioned 284 times in Scripture, and almost always it's in connection with Israel. We know that Babylon is who led away. The people of Israel into captivity for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. She was that first kingdom as revealed in Daniel. The head of gold and that first beast that looked like a lion and stood up and became like a man. The second kingdom, Medo-Persia. Cyrus, it's 58 times in Scripture. King Cyrus was mentioned by name. Over a hundred years before his birth in scriptures, one of the great examples of prophecy being fulfilled. He, w- he made a decree that allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. It was a great thing in terms of the Jews and preserving their nation. And that stuff happened during the days of, of um, uh, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and Ezra and Nehemiah. But Medo-Persia did persecute Israel on and off for about a hundred years. When you read in the book of Ezra, sometime after, later, when the work was still not finished, Artaxerxes, the king, stopped the work for a period of time. He suspended it. That was in Ezra chapter 4. We see the persecutions that Nehemiah had to deal with. In the book of Nehemiah, in Esther, Haman's plot sought to deceive the king into committing genocide against the Jews and erasing them from history. So Persia was an instrument of persecution against the Jews. The second kingdom. Okay, the, the torso of, of, of silver. Okay? The second beast. The bear raised up on his side with, with the, the three ribs in its mouth. Okay? The second kingdom. The Jewish festival of Purim, Ezra 5 and 6, remembers the attempt that Haman made to commit genocide against the Jews as an officer of Medo-Persia. And it's failure. When we were in Israel last spring, they were celebrating Purim. It's funny how the Jews kind of miss the point of these things. And they use it kind of as a Halloween celebration. They dress up and they get drunk because they say the king of Persia had been drinking and that's when it was revealed to him about... The assassination attempt on his life, or something. I can't remember the specifics. I'd have to go look it up. But it was revealed to him um, that uh, and it ended up causing Mordecai to come into favor. And it ended up resulting in him seeing the truth of this situation. So because he was drinking, he must have been drunk. And it was while he was drunk that God spoke to him. So we need to get drunk so God can speak to us. That's the point they get out of pouring. Why? Why? Because the veil is over the eyes. They can't interpret it. The Jewish people excel in every avenue of life except for the interpretation of the Scriptures. And that's God's judgment upon them because they rejected their Messiah. Yet, God still has elected them and has a plan and a purpose for them. And that's why we should continue to declare unto them their word given through the Jews to all of mankind. Preach unto them their Messiah. And even the veil can be removed. Because it was removed in Paul. It was removed in the apostles. It was removed in all of the members of the first church. (laughs) But a side note. Uh, Greece, the third kingdom, nine times in Scripture, it existed primarily during the intertestamental period. The 400 years between the uh, prophet Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. There are many references to the kingdom of Greece in the apocryphal books of the Maccabees. You know, the Apocrypha, those books the Catholics count, count as Scripture, were written during the intertestamental period. The Jews never accepted them as canon. Jesus and the apostles never quoted for them, from them. They have a historical value, but they're not the Word of God. And a lot of the weird Catholic doctrine like prayers for the dead and purgatory and all that comes from the Apocrypha. Not because the Apocrypha clearly states it. They do what Catholics always do. They read into something that's not there. Nonetheless, a lot of these things are covered and talks about how Greece persecuted Israel during this time. Um, there were the, the the Greece the Greek kingdom that arose very quickly under Alexander the Great quickly divided into four kingdoms when he died. It went to his four generals. Okay, and this was prophesied in Daniel two uh, and and in Daniel seven with the beast that had four heads like a leopard. Okay, it was the um, belly of brass. In, in, in Daniel's um, belly and thighs of brass, in Daniel's uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, chapter 2. But when these kingdoms were divided, you pro- the Syrian and Egyptian sides of those kingdoms, uh, they uh, encroached upon Israel's land multiple times, persecuted her for about 250 years. And this is what Daniel calls the king of the north and the king of the south in chapter 8 and chapter 11. This was Greece. Uh, Probably the most uh, infamous of those kings was Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, He was a type of Antichrist that persecuted Israel during the intertestamental period called the little horn, a type of Antichrist. So Greece, again, an instrument of persecution against Israel. And then Daniel's fourth kingdom was Rome. Rome oppressed Israel for over 200 years. She is the one that gave the authority to the Jews to crucify her Messiah, okay? It is she who dispersed the Jews when she destroyed the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and it was Rome who destroyed Herod's temple, and the Jews have been scattered ever since. They were scattered until they began to come back in 1948, Um. In in Daniel's image, the legs are of iron down to the feet and toes, iron mixed with clay. And then the terrible beast, the terrible fourth beast, obviously is what Daniel describes in chapter 7. This represents Rome, and out of Rome the little horn arises. So Rome becomes revised Rome um, in the last days. It's never gone anywhere. Four Gentile kingdoms that persecuted Israel when she was in the land or when she was a nation. Okay, uh, the ten uh, toes or the ten uh, horns are ten kingdoms that will arise in, either inside the territory of the old Roman Empire or after the manner of the old Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a kingdom ruled by one government or one man when Julius uh, Caesar ushered in the empire side of it or Augustus later consolidated it. But the last day's revised Roman Empire will be a ten-nation federation of nation-states that were derived from her provinces. So it is Rome, it's just revised. Not revived. Ten, ho- ho- ten toes and ten horns. Okay? So we, we understand what the ten horns are, but, and we see that Daniel prophesies four Gentile kingdoms, Okay, and then we're told that the seven heads in John are seven kingdoms. Is there a contradiction from Daniel until the end of till Messiah's millennial kingdom? There's only four Gentile nations that um, persecuted Israel. So, how does four become seven? Is it a contradiction? Well, no, it's not. I think it's talking about the same thing. I think the seven heads refer to seven instruments of persecution against Israel. And I think what Daniel is describing is the same thing that John's seeing, but the perspective is a little bit different. Was there only four kingdoms in all of human history that were instruments of persecution against national national Israel? From Daniel's day until the millennium, there have been four, but has there only been four in all of history? There's a lot that went on before Daniel. Daniel lived in the time of the Babylonian captivity, but Israel had been a nation for quite some time. All the years of Moses, the the judges, the, 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 the united monarchy under David and Solomon, the divided monarchy that went on for 300 plus years. So were there other such Gentile kingdoms that would be included in John's number? Look at chapter 12 again in Revelation. We have some clues here about what John's perspective is in this vision. What time period is he covering? Daniel was covering... Was what was revealed to Daniel was covering the period of time from his day until the end. But what is John looking back at? There's a few clues. Look in verse 4 said, the dragon's tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And then it talks about how he was waiting for the woman to deliver her seed so he could devour it. These are allusions back to the book of Genesis. They're allusions back to Satan's fall. When he took a third of heaven with him, Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is an event that happened in the beginning. The prophecy of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent was given in the Garden of Eden. Satan's been waiting to devour that seed going all the way back to the beginning. Look at verse 9. Here's another clue. The dragon is identified. He's identified as that old serpent. So we have another allusion all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So those clues tell me that John's scope here is all of human history from the Garden of Eden until the end. Daniel's is from his day until the end. So John's given us a bigger scope. Okay? The entire times of the Gentiles, per se. Not just Babylon until now, but going all the way back. Okay? In chapter 17, he's given this vision of this scarlet-colored beast and he's told that the seven... Heads are seven hills upon which the woman sits and are seven kingdoms. Okay? The purpose that this is given in chapter 17 is to identify the eighth kingdom that will complete or bring the times of the Gentiles to the end. It's, the purpose is to build up to Antichrist and identify him very specifically. So it's related to that. Let's look add a couple of verses to try to see who are these other kingdoms that John's talking about. How does four become seven? Remember, Daniel saw from his day forward. John is seen from the Garden of Eden forward. Um, let's look at a couple passages. Um, Paul, would you look up Lamentations 5, 5-6? through I think we hit Lamentations one time in this study. Now we're going to make sure. The only book I think we've not gone to is Song of Solomon, but I've already gotten it written in my margin. Uh, a little bit later in the book, Tony, if you'd look up Isaiah fifty-two four, it's interesting uh, identification in these these passages. Lamentations five five and six. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. National Israel is being persecuted. She's been persecuted by two peoples, the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Isaiah 52, 4. Because saith the Lord, my, my people. Israel went down to Egypt to sojourn there. We know they were oppressed there by the Egyptians, put into slavery. And we're also told that the Assyrian oppressed Israel without cause. If we're going back to the beginning of time, there were two kingdoms that specifically persecuted national Israel that aren't included in Daniel's number because he's looking from his time forward. But when you go all the way back, we have to consider Egypt and Assyria. Egypt was the first kingdom to oppress national Israel. Israel wasn't a nation until Jacob and his sons and their families went down to Egypt and became a nation. God allowed them to go down there and live so they could be preserved. And 70 people that went down and 75 the total number together would grow and become a couple of million in a short period of time. Israel became a nation, a nation is not just a land, it's a people. She became a national people in Egypt. Egypt is mentioned 731 times in Scripture, almost always concerning Israel. Israel became a nation in Egypt and she was oppressed for it. We know the story of the Exodus. We know what Pharaoh did. We know about the king who arose that knew not Joseph. Pharaoh Necho killed King Josiah when he came through the land. The king of the south, when we talk about all the stuff going on in Daniel, those were the Ptolemite kings out of uh, uh, Egypt. Okay? Um, Ezekiel 29 14 and 15. I hope Ptolemy was right. The king I think the Egyptian side of the Greek empire was the Ptolemites and the, the Syrian side was the Seleucids. But I may be mixed up there. So I'll go ahead and give you that disclaimer. One or the other. Can't remember everything. Chapter 29, 14 and 15. Listen to what uh, God says about Egypt. I will bring again the captivity of Egypt and will cause them to return into the land of Pathros into the land of their habitation, and they shall be there a base kingdom. It shall be the basest of the kingdoms. Neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations, for I will diminish them that they shall no more rule over the nations. So Israel was judged in the days of Babylon. It would no longer be a powerful nation. And it never has been. Egypt is a joke. It still is today. It's one of the... Cairo is one of the filthiest cities on the face of the planet. Egypt's glory is forever gone. Okay? It persecuted Israel and it paid for it. It was judged. God used Nebuchadnezzar to judge her. It's never been a great power again, but it's interesting. The Bible says that Egypt will serve the Lord alongside Israel in the millennium. Egypt has a place in the millennial kingdom. She has a blessing that the other nations don't have. That's interesting. And I'll look at a couple passages with that in a minute. Why would she be blessed in the millennium? That's something to think about. But Egypt, so we've got, we know four of the heads are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so Egypt, the first of the nations to persecute Israel, that makes five. And then there's Assyria. Assyria was the ancient kingdom founded by Nimrod. Okay, It was the predominant world kingdom from the 9th century B.C. until 612 B.C. when it was overthrown by the Babylonians. Assyria is mentioned 175 times in Scripture and again almost always with regard to Israel. Assyria persecuted or oppressed Israel in the land on and off for about 175 years. Maybe you'll remember names from the Kings in the Chronicles, tiglath pileser Shalmaneser, Sennacherib. These were kings that came against Israel, the northern and the southern kingdoms. In 722 BC, the Assyrians sacked the northern capital of Samaria and carried the ten tribes away captive into the nations. And so Assyria was responsible for this concept of the ten lost tribes. Now there were people from every tribe that had moved down into the southern kingdom to worship God and not follow the idolatry of the northern kingdom. So the ten tribes were never lost. But Assyria was the instrument of the destruction of the northern kingdom. Antichrist in the book of Isaiah is called the Assyrian. So Assyria was a kingdom that had the persecution of national Israel in common with Daniel's four Gentile kingdoms. Egypt as well. Just like Egypt, however, Assyria is blessed in the millennium. Not Babylon, not Persia, not Greece, not Rome, but Egypt and Assyria have an interesting place in the millennial kingdom. Let's look at Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 23 through 25. Listen to this. In that day, this is talking about the millennium, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. This highway will go through the land of Israel. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria. Even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of mine hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. That's pretty interesting to me that Israel is the focal point of the Millennial Kingdom, but Assyria to the north of Israel and Egypt to the south are also blessed. Now why in the world would that be if these kingdoms like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, persecuted Israel. God said, I will bless those that bless you and persecute those that persecute you. Why would that be? Well, where is it that Israel was given refuge to become a nation? Egypt. There was a Pharaoh and there was a people that welcomed Joseph's family into the land that gave them a place in Goshen. And because of that, Israel became a nation. There was a king who arose who knew not Joseph, and Egypt turned on on the the Israelites. But God doesn't forget the faithful work of others. Even if their sons and their daughters and their descendants renege on that. God doesn't forget what the Pharaoh who blessed Joseph did. And because of that, because Egypt was where the sons of Abraham became a nation, they bought to themselves a blessing. And God hasn't forgotten that. They will be blessed in the Millennial Kingdom. What about Assyria? Where was Abraham before he was called by God? Where did he live? He lived in Assyria. Assyria. Abraham was an Assyrian before God called him out and promised to make of him a great nation. Egypt was where Israel became a nation of people. Assyria was the land of Abraham's birth. So by that fact alone, Assyria, a land that gave birth to Abraham, Abraham's family, even when he left, blessed him by providing a wife for his son Isaac. You know, Jacob was able to go up there and find a place to live with Laban. I know Laban kind of tried to take advantage of him a little bit, but still he came out of there with two wives. And the twelve sons of Jacob were born, which would give rise to the twelve tribes. God didn't forget these things. And because of that, Assyria is blessed in the kingdom or the millennium. God doesn't forget the things we do to bring glory to Him. Assyria, that's where Jonah went to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. Wicked people. The reason Jonah didn't go or didn't want to go isn't because he was afraid necessarily. If you go read later in the book, he didn't want to go because he knew how good and merciful God is and he knew the people would repent and he knew when they did, God wouldn't judge him and that just ticked Jonah off because Assyria was an enemy of Israel. Okay, Jonah was the first hyper-Calvinist. He just wanted to sit back and let God do it. You know, I'm not going to go preach to him. God's going to do what he wants to do. And there's no responsibility here. Jonah was a hyper-Calvinist. And he was rebuked for it. But what did the Ninevites do when they heard the preaching? Jonah didn't go in there and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jonah went in there and said, in 40 days this wicked, filthy city is going to be overthrown by God. And then he went and sat out on the outskirts to see what would happen. What happened? The people repented. Even to the fact point where they were clothing the animals in sackcloth and ashes. Even the king. The people repented. And God changed not his mind, but his way. He delayed that judgment. It would come 150 years later. And Nahum the Elkishite would prophesy that. And Nineveh would be so thoroughly wiped out by the Babylonians. That the ruins of the city wouldn't be discovered for 2,500 years. Buried in the sands of Iraq. God didn't change His mind with regard to Assyria. He changed His way. And there was a generation of people that repented. Now, God doesn't forget these things. And for that, Assyria being the land of Abraham's birth. And there was a generation of people there that that, uh, repented and restrained uh, where persecution of Israel is concerned, God remembers that. They have a place of blessing in the land. I also find it interesting when you read the book of Acts, particularly chapter 2 and chapter 8, that Egypt and Assyria were also the earliest Gentile seats of the Christian church. Many of the first believers went down into Egypt and Assyria and won disciples. And some of the oldest church. Uh, testimony in the world comes from those two lands. So maybe those are reasons why they have a blessed place in the millennium. When we read about the persecution today of the Coptic Christians in Egypt and of the Assyrian Christians in Iraq at the hands of ISIS, we're talking about people descended from the oldest groups of Gentile Christians in church history. These are some of the oldest uh, 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 lines or lineages of Christians in the world and they're being persecuted horribly. And all we do is talk about it. What, what we ought to look for when we consider a candidate for president is someone who will act to protect these, protect these Christians and Christians here at home. He may not look exactly like, like we do, but I'll take somebody that, that wants 75% of what I want as opposed to nothing. Now that's not lesser of two evils, you should vote for Mitt Romney. That's not what I'm saying. Like people try to say, it's different than that. But we need to look for people who will protect Christians, will protect Israel, because there's a national blessing in this. And when we don't do that, we're just inviting judgment upon ourselves. I don't endorse any candidate for president right now. I may not even vote for president. I may vote for my dad again three times in a row. He's qualified. But these are the things we should look for in a candidate. Not label. Not what Fox News says about somebody or doesn't say. These are things we should look for. If we can't find it, then count our vote so precious that we don't exercise it. Mm-hmm. That's another matter. So we've got six kingdoms that persecuted national Israel in history. Egypt, Assyria. If you're going back to the beginning, John's perspective, you throw Egypt and Assyria in there. And then from Daniel's day forward, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's six. Okay? Now what does John say in chapter 17 about these kingdoms that tie back to the seven heads of the beast, which we also see on the dragon? He says that the seven are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is. What does that mean? In John's day, was there... Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, those five? No, they were gone. What kingdom was existing at the time John wrote that? Rome. So obviously, the five include Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, three of Daniel's kingdoms, and then the sixth is. Who is? The sixth is Rome. It was at the time John wrote that. The other is not yet come. And when he does, he will continue a short space. Well, who's number seven? What Daniel saw as one is revealed to John as two. The seventh is the revised Roman Empire. It'll have, it's not yet come. It will have a short reign. Ten kingdoms are represented by the ten horns of Daniel's fourth beast. And the two to- ten toes of the two legs of iron, what Daniel saw as one is revealed to John as two for the purpose of identifying the eighth who is Antichrist himself. So number seven is this ten-nation federation that will arise to, cr- to usher in this one-world government, a revised Roman Empire. So Daniel's fourth beast, John describes as two because you, you have... Rome and the revised Roman Empire separated by the church age. Okay, remember the Old Testament prophets didn't see the church age, and what revealed to them? There was a gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. Daniel was writing as relates to Israel. The prophetic clock in terms of Israel is paused while God builds his church. And when the church is ushered out in the rapture, the prophetic clock in Daniel's 70th week starts ticking again. So it would make sense to me that what Daniel saw as one in relation to Israel is two in relation to the church and Revelation is given to the church. So we have seven heads that represent seven kingdoms that have and will persecute national Israel in the land. So even the structure of Satan as he's revealed in chapter 12 deals with his hatred of Israel. Further proof that This is the overwhelming theme here. Satan versus Israel. He hates her. And when the church is taken out, his wrath is focused upon her. When she's protected by God, his wrath is focused upon the remnant of her seed, those Gentiles, those tribulation saints who believe and follow the God of Israel in the tribulation. Some have said that uh, the seventh kingdom here in Revelation is actually Nazi Germany. Germany. Because she continued for a short space and she persecuted Israel. Maybe Nazi Germany is a type of the seventh kingdom that revised Roman Empire. But Israel was not in the land when Nazi Germany arose. She didn't persecute national Israel. In fact, more than anything else, the Holocaust resulted in Israel being regathered in the land. It didn't result in her being dispersed So Nazi Germany didn't realize that she was an instrument not only of God's judgment upon a people, exactly what was warned Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy at the end of the book, if they turn from God. What Nazi Germany did to them is exactly what God warned them about. Some people can't handle that in their theology. And but even those instruments of judgment, God judges for their wickedness. But Nazi Germany didn't realize, Hitler didn't realize that what he was doing would do more than anything else to ensure that Israel could go back to the land. Without the Holocaust, there would have not been the sympathy for the Jew that would have resulted in nations giving her a place to live. So Nazis not, Nazi Germany is not what's being talked about here. The seventh kingdom is yet to come, the seventh head. But it will arise quickly. The Bible says it will arise in one hour with the beast. The beast will probably be part of this kingdom that arises, this one world government, and then at some point shortly thereafter, he'll assert himself as the ultimate authority. Um, And then those other kings will quickly give their power to the beast, who is then the eighth king, the Antichrist himself. The Bible says he is of the other seven. He's just like the other seven. He'll hate Israel and act to extinguish her. But like them, he too will go into perdition. So back to Revelation 12. I know I've been all over the place. The dragon had seven heads. These seven heads represent the seven main forms of oppression against national Israel throughout history. This in turn agrees with the four main Gentile sources of oppression against Israel revealed in Daniel. The ten horns of the dragon are the ten horns on Daniel's fourth beast. They are the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's great image. They are the ten horns of Antichrist as revealed in Revelation 13. And they are the ten horns of the scarlet-colored beast uh, in Revelation 17. The, seventh, uh, the form of the seventh kingdom out of which the beast shall arise is that ten horns. That's the form that the kingdom will take. The seven heads are the spirit of the, those Gentile kingdoms throughout history. The horns are the form. And out of this Antichrist will arise and Satan is behind all of it. That's the lesson. Now, it's interesting because it says here that the dragon has seven heads and ten horns and where are his crowns? How many crowns does he have? Seven and what are they crowning? His heads. The heads are crowned on Satan. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. This is Antichrist. Okay? Okay? We've talked about it before. I've showed you um, how this relates to descriptions of Antichrist elsewhere. I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So the dragon has seven heads that are crowned with seven crowns. The beast also has seven heads, and ten horns, but it's his horns that are crowned. Ten crowns. What does this mean? Satan has always ruled the kingdoms that have arisen to destroy Israel or the seed of the woman. He's been the ruler of all those kingdoms. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome... He'll rule that seven Roman, uh, the seven kingdom that revised Roman Empire. Those ten toes, those ten horns. He's the ruler behind all of it. So the heads, which represent these forms of oppression, are crowned. Okay, um, he's ruled everything prior to Antichrist's kingdom. The beast has seven heads, not crowned, because Antichrist hasn't ruled the kingdoms prior to his. He comes to power in his day. Therefore, the ten horns are crowned on the beast because these ten kings give their power to Antichrist. It says that in chapter 17. And at the time of these kingdoms, even the dragon himself gives his full power and authority and his seat to the beast. So it's significant that the dragon's heads are crowned because he's been behind this for all of history. But the beast horns are crowned because out of this ten-nation federation, the beast himself will rule, even to the point that Satan gives his seat and his power and authority to Antichrist. The Antichrist is the devil incarnate. And sadly, many professing Christians today will rush to bow down at his feet because their understanding of God and Jesus and the Gospel is so far from the Word of God They won't recognize who He is. They'll think we were uh, spontaneously combusted or they'll think that the aliens got us when the rapture comes. I want to end with a couple of verses from the New Testament in contrast to what we see here with Satan giving his power to the beast and with the dragon and the hatred for Israel. Um, Matthew, turn to John 3.35. Eric, John 5, 26 and 27. And then I'll read Matthew 28, 18. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. You see, the Father... Puts His power, His authority, and His seat in the hands of the Son. You don't come to the Father except through the Son. That He that believes not the Son, it says in the next verse, will never see life. God's wrath is upon Him. So the Father commits His power, His seat, His authority into the hands of the Son. John five twenty six and 27. You must not have done Bible drills as a kid, Eric. <laughs> You're kind of slow back there. 26, so For as the Father had life in himself, so had he given to the Son to have life in himself, and had given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. God, has given, God the Father has given the Son power and authority. No question. And in Matthew 28, 18, you know, this is what ought to motivate the Great Commission. I don't know how you really look at the Great Commission and leave this verse out because this is what motivates us. Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. All power, all authority given to Him in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Well, if Jesus has been given all power and authority, where did it come from? God. Satan offered him all his power and authority. Jesus said, No. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord God in him only. But Jesus, being God manifest in the flesh, God the Son, has been given all power and authority. Friends, Satan is the great counterfeiter. He wants to counterfeit everything God does. Because he wants to be God. So he's a copycat. God had his son. Manifest in the flesh, God became man. Satan's gonna copy that. He has his incarnation, Antichrist. Satan manifests in the flesh, copycat. God gives all His power and authority into the hands of Jesus the Christ. Satan, the great copycat, who wants to be like God, he can't come up with his own original plan. He's got to copy the Father. Gives His power and authority. All of it into the hands of the beast. His son, Antichrist. So, that's a counterfeiter. That's what Satan is a counterfeiter. So it shouldn't surprise you that a lot of what you see that comes from Satan looks a lot like what you think God or an angel of light should look like. Be careful. Satan is not obvious. He's a deceiver. And he's already infiltrated our churches. That's why we need this book. That's why we need to study this book. That's why we need to seek God's will here. Because Satan, despite his attempts to corrupt the Scriptures and produce counterfeits, the true Word of God remains in this reserve. And we can find the answers here. Satan's a counterfeiter. That's why the dragon has crowns on seven heads and the beast has crowns on ten horns. Because Satan gives his power and authority to the beast. Copycat. Satan, the great counterfeiter, the adversary, the oppressor of Israel, the promised seed. That's been his aim since day one. And that's why he has seven heads. He was behind those seven kingdoms that tried to destroy Israel as she, when she existed as a nation. He'll try again with this revised Roman Empire. He'll try through Antichrist, the little horn, but it won't happen. We're going to see in this great war that God comes to the aid of Israel and protects her. But Satan's number one goal, his primary purpose in this vision here is to destroy the seed of the woman. Why would he want to destroy the seed of the woman? Because he knows it hath been written, it hath been declared by God Himself that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Would bruise the head of the serpent. He would only be able to bruise the heel of Messiah. I can survive a bruised heel. I can survive a crushed heel. But you can't survive a crushed head. That word bruise in that that passage in Genesis, that word bruise in English used to have a lot stronger meaning than it does now. When you were bruised, you were crushed. We only use it now to talk about little i got a bruise here on my finger. That's a bruise. But Satan knew that his head will be crushed. And he won't survive. Genesis 3.15 We call that the Proto-Evangelium. It's a Latin word that means first gospel. The first gospel was preached to the serpent himself in, in the Garden of Eden. It was preached to Adam and Eve. And since that day Satan has been standing there waiting for the seed to be born so he could destroy it. And he's attempted to destroy it numerous times throughout history. It started with who? Who was the first seed of the woman that he killed or saw murdered? C- Abel. Satan convinced Cain to murder his brother. That was his first attempt. But he failed because the prophecy seed came through Seth. Okay? Satan tried to Poison everything, Genesis 6, when the sons of God, the angels, came down and co-mingled and had sex with the daughters of men to try to produce a super race and to pollute the seed of the woman so that an unpolluted seed could not be born. But he failed. How did he fail? Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah's line wasn't polluted. And the seed continued. And then we come down and we, there's lots of places in the Old Testament where even the seed of David hung by a thread. A single person. A child had to be hidden because people saw this life. The seed of David, the seed of Messiah hung by a single thread. And Satan did everything in his power to eradicate it. But yet it survived. Yet it endured. And that seed was born. In Bethlehem. And Satan what not done. He tried to eradicate it through Herod. Mary and Joseph had to flee into Egypt. That's been his primary purpose. And it's his purpose today. And because the church is the spiritual seat of Abraham, we're equally the object of his wrath. We need to be on guard. He's not original. He's a counterfeiter. He's a copycat. He wants to be God. And that's why he ended up falling from heaven in the beginning. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. I'm going to be with you a few weeks here, three or four weeks, and then I'm heading out of the country. So I'm hoping that we can get through this chapter. Anybody have any questions? I know that's a lot of stuff, and I know this is kind of like a seminary class, but I just want you to see that God's Word is a wellspring of knowledge. And everything fits together perfectly when you look at it in context. The prophecy, I mean the picture of all of world history, right here in Revelation 12, You have all of world history summed up in a few verses in terms of Satan's part in it.